Yeah. Welcome, church. Welcome to those in the sanctuary. Thanks for joining us today. You know, that video is really funny until you realize I do those things, right? Then you're kind of like, ugh, I, I do that. We are here today. We are in the first world. Like it or not, we're here in the first world. And, and there are things we make up. There are things that we let and get in our way of giving thanks and praise to God. There are things that happen. And we can joke about it. And we, can, we can diminish it. But the fact is, it's there. Uh, and we also, um, there are real struggles here. So there are, there are light struggles, but there are real struggles. And today we're here to talk about how do we wrestle with that in the first world that we live in? How do we give thanks? I mean, really give thanks to God in this world. And, and why even do it? And I'll be honest with you, when I first got the, the assignment of this weekend, I thought, man, this is, like, this is my third Thanksgiving. I've, I've talked about thanks inside and out, Thessalonians 5. I mean, I've done the whole thing. I've done, been th- I, I was kind of not excited about that until I came across a verse in Romans 1. And in a minute, we're going to stand for it. But this verse got me so excited because what it did was it opened up my eyes about what God values for thanks. I did not know the weight God puts into this. In fact, he puts thanks right up there with worshiping him. And I had no idea. For years as a Christian, I missed it. I knew I should give thanks. I knew it's the right thing to do. But when I saw this verse, and I hope you see it too, it opened my eyes to, I need to give thanks. It's a big part of being a Christian. So with that, please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Found in Romans 1. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. You may be seated. So let's talk about that verse, if that could go back on the screen. For although they knew God... Although they knew God existed, demons know God exists. Satan knows God exists. That's just like, that's just an entry point. Everybody knows that. God exists. That's that's a known. But what God goes on to say is, they neither glorified him as God. The word glorified in different translations is, is given to praise or worship. So it's glorified, praise, worship. That's what that translated word means. Glorified, praised, or worship. And then it goes on to say, so they neither glorified, praised, or worshipped him. And then they go on to say, nor gave thanks to him. So what we're learning in this verse is, is God could have easily allowed his spoken word to come out as, they, neither, they didn't worship me, therefore I let their hearts become darkened and futile. But what he did was, God said, no, no, they didn't worship me, nor did they give me thanks and so he put thanks up with worship when he defined this. And he said, the consequence will be, you'll give up, you'll exchange me for reptiles, birds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As you can see in some world religions today, they've done that. And so that, this is why I got so excited. I want you to be excited with me because this is why it's important to give thanks. And sometimes at Thanksgiving, it's obligatory. We sit around the table, we give our obligatory thanks for what, you know, I'm not dying today. Uh, you know, whatever, my wife is in good health, I'm good spirits, we have a good marriage, I love my house, I love my cars. We kind of obligatory go through that, and that's good. That's right to do. That's the right thing. But God's saying, I want you to give, take this seriously. Don't just obligatorily go through the motions. Give this some thought. 
So there are, there are two, I'm going to give you today two solid reasons beyond the things we see around us, two solid reasons for giving real heartfelt thanks, and four roadblocks, two reasons, four roadblocks. The number one reason I have is, and if you're following along your bulletin, or if you're following along the church app and you're filling your notes out, if you are on the church app filling your notes out, you can send to your email and keep an electronic copy. Uh, the, first, the first line is who God is, who God is, and the scripture's there that we're going to cover in the, in the bulletin outline for you to see later. Who God is is the most important standalone reason to give thanks. I mean, to really, when everything's going wrong, who God is should really lift us up. And let me explain. I can't explain. That's, that's the problem. There are, there are, I do not have enough words, nor can I conceive who God is. So I will go through the, some of the scripture in the Bible and, and break out some of what God is described as. So let me start. In Exodus, he is I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is compassionate. Fulfills promises, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, so powerful that nobody may see his face and live. In numbers, he is truthful, unchanging, always following through. In Deuteronomy, he's a consuming fire, a jealous God, merciful, faithful. He's a devouring fire, a destroyer, warrior. He is God of gods, Lord of lords, mighty, awesome. He shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. In Samuel, he is rock. In Psalms, he is refuge, strength, ever-present help. He is our guide, our judge, sustainer, and fortress. He is the strength of my heart. He is our portion. He is a sun and shield. He is righteous. His words are flawless. In Isaiah, he is sovereign, comforter, provider. In Matthew, he is the God of the living. In John, he is spirit. In 1 Corinthians, he is faithful, the God of peace. In Ephesians, he is righteousness, holiness. In 1 John, he is a God of love and light. In Jude, God is our Savior through Christ Jesus our Lord. God is big. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is infinite. But sometimes, describing infinite to us, it gets too big. Let me give you an example. Okay, going from here to Ohio is a two-hour drive. Okay, I get that. That's comprehensible. Going from here to Europe is a seven-hour plane flight, nine-hour plane flight in that ballpark. Okay, I get that concept. Going from here to the sun, I'm starting to lose you. I don't comprehend that distance. I barely comprehend it to Europe. How big the sun is? Oh, it's how many tens of thousands of nuclear bombs? Right over my head. I'm not grasping you at this point. The sun's huge. It's this big. It's flying over my head. Okay, well, let's try this. It's the extent of the Milky Way. I'm not getting you. I'm not, so what, what I'm going to do, and so God is bigger than the sun, the Milky Way, the extent of the universe. He's bigger. So how do I get us to comprehend or begin to comprehend the magnitude of who he is? There's two verses. Psalm 33, verse 9. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So verse 9, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded it stood firm. God spoke and this all came into existence. Let's start there. Everything you touch, you feel, who you are, the soul, everything you are was created by him with a breath. Big. Maybe that brings this big down to who we are. In Hebrews, we're described as he can take it all away as well. Hebrews 12. Now, we don't know the author for sure of who, who wrote Hebrews, but we believe it was Paul. 
Nonetheless, here's what was written. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things. Stop there for a moment. That is, created things. All things we see can be removed by his breath. So he created with a breath, and he will, at some point, remove what can be shaken, which is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hopefully this brings it in. This is a God who's spoken into being, everything's into being. This is the same God who, at some point in the timeline of history, he will speak and he will rip away what is seen. He will rip away the, the, the energy and matter of all around us. He will rip away the heavens, he'll rip away the earth, and leaving the new heaven and new earth, the unshakable spiritual kingdom realm that, that God presides in. Now that's hopefully bringing immense magnitude down to, okay, I get it. He's going to remove everything at some point. The, ha- the, the universe, its ex- farthest extent, to the earth, and it's all getting ripped away. This is a God we serve. This is a God who, although he can do all things, is accessible to us. So he's way out there in power and consummation. He is accessible to us. He died on the cross for us, giving us salvation. He wants to know us personally. He wants to be my father. This God who can do and has done all things quietly says to me, I want to be your father. He wants to give me his power to expand his kingdom. He wants to use me. He wants to bless me. And God's word says he wants to give me the desires of my heart. So this God who's all-consuming, devouring fire, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, says quietly to me and to you, I want to be your father. I want, to, I want to be accessible to you. And I have died for you. This is my number one pillar for giving thanks. When everything else is fading away and my day is bleak and, my, and I'm walking, you ever wake up and you're just like, gosh, it started now. In fact, a few weeks ago, my youngest son literally walked in the room. He stood at the side of my, my wife's side of the bed, and he vomited on the floor. That was how the day, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, when you start off there, where are you going? It's nowhere but up, hey, but, but that, was, that was where you just say, God, it's, it's starting right, it, this is where we start. But I give you thanks, because you're big, you're powerful, and, and God, thanks for being my father. You can start right there. You can start and end right there. Now, the number two reason is salvation in heaven. And we're going to bookend this sermon with that topic. So we're going we're to go from here, from who God is, and he wants to know us, to heaven and salvation. It's beautiful. And as I said, we've got two main points. That is, God is big and heaven and salvation. That's the two main thank yous. And there's four roadblocks. Roadblock number one, if you're following along in your outline, is issue of discontentment. Issue of discontentment. Discontentment will get in the way of thanks. It has happened over and over again, and it will continue to happen over and over again. We focus on what we don't have. We make up needs we don't need. We believe it, though. We saw the video. We, we do. We get frustrated. Man, I bought these jeans. The phone won't fit. You know, my hand's too big for the Pringles jar. It's frustrating. Leftovers. I'm sick of them. We joke. We laugh. But the truth is we, we do have this, this discontentment, and it's going to it permeates through our lives. Let me give you an example. My wife and I were married in 2000. So we bought our first car together. It was either late 2000, early 2001. It was a used 1990 Ford Contour. Had 20,000 miles. I was ecstatic. She was ecstatic. Our first car together. It had everything I needed. In fact, 
I remember these words almost verbatim as I pulled out of the dealership. I said to my wife, I said, this car is all that we'll ever need. It had leather. It had a moonroof. I could unlock the car from a... I didn't have to walk up and turn anymore. I could do that. I didn't have to hand crank, which is... Believe me, I had cars that did that hand crank thing. I could push a button. The window goes down and up. I could... There, her door gets unlocked with a button. I mean, we're laughing now, but truthfully, when that transition happened, we who lived through that transition were very thankful. I mean, how many times on a cold winter's day did you get to the door, you're trying to get your key in, it's locked shut, you can't get in, then your wife's standing freezing, you jump across side, you try to unlock it for her, can't pull it up, she's standing freezing, it's a mess. How do we ever survive? <laughs> so finally, this car had all that I needed. But let's fast forward now 10 years to 2011. I was done. I was done with this car. I still like Ford. I didn't like the Contour. It had only one CD. At the time, I was thankful because I didn't have to put the tape deck in and keep the CD player in my seat. When I stopped and hit the ground and ruined my CD player, I can get a witness. <laughs> I hated that. And so now I got my CD right into the center of the car. It was great. But there's six changers now. There's 12 disc changers. There's a DVD. There's putting the... DVD back for my kids so they can be quiet. I mean, it's all wonderful. 2011, I was done with the contour. I was done. So I, I drove in, and, and hit, I drove into the parking lot of the dealer. He didn't know it, but I did. I wasn't driving off of that car. I was going to sell it to someone. And I traded in. I traded in for a better, newer car. But that's, that took me 10 years to get the point of complete contentment to complete discontent. Have you ever been this way? You walk in and you're having a, a, a marital conversation. I will divorce you if we don't get a new car by the end of this year. Have you done that? I've had enough of this phone. A year ago, I couldn't figure anything out with it. A year ago, this had all that I needed. Had all the access to the internet. I can scope mom, Skype mom and dad. It's everything I needed. And a year later, if I don't get a new phone, I'm going to go crazy. It's too slow. Right? We, this is the issue of discontentment. It will not end. It will not end. And we think our generation is alone. We laugh at, our, we laugh at the video. Ha, look at us. We're foolish. And then we, but we realize Paul had this. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, the Christians in Philippi, and this is what he had to say. And what this alludes to, I'm going to tell you in a moment, what this alludes to is that the church in Philippi did not have contentment either. And I will bet you there's a lot of folks that didn't have contentment. When we think of the forefathers of our forefathers, our forefathers, we think of you know, Abraham Lincoln. Wow, that man had contentment. We think of George Washington. We think of, you know, you go out on the line, you think, you know, these, these historians must have found contentment in the simple things in life. But the truth is, here's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Philippians 4. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. That's Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. I have learned to be content. I've learned to be content. And we can also act out of discontentment, can't we? Just like the car scenario, you may say, well, how else do I act out of discontentment? I supervised hundreds of employees in different companies, different businesses, church, different sites. And here's something I have found to be true. Hire the perfect employee. Their skill set matches the job requirements. They're going to be completely content. And they don't know it, but we do a, you know, we do a, a human resources skills assessment. These are what you like to do. This is what the job is. I mean, you can't 
really get better than that. That matches up pretty good with you. So for the first three months, this employee's on fire. A year into this thing, they've had it. They've had it with a job. They've had it with a boss. They've had it with the coworkers. It's all bad. Bad, bad, bad. Everything about it's bad. They're ready to move on. And if you look through the resume, they've had eight jobs in nine years. All that was bad. It was all bad. It wasn't. They were acting out of discontentment. Well, I've had a new girlfriend for the last three months, every month. You, you ever see that happen? Find a new boyfriend every three months? New girlfriend every three months? Now, we're not talking about high school and middle school. That, that happens, right? But we're talking, about, <laughs> we're talking about older folks like us who, gosh, you did what? You had how many? What? And, and so you're moving along. I've been in four divorces. Man, that, you found four bad people. Issue of discontentment. It, it, it sits there, and it's in us. And it's been in us for over 2,000 years. Paul didn't write this letter to the wind. So it happens, okay? It doesn't make you bad. It means it makes you human. That's what happens. So what did Paul say was the answer? Actually, let me, let me back up. Let me, let me take this a, a step further. So what if I said I could give you $10,000 more a year in your salary, $20,000 more salary, 50000 more in your salary. What if I could just go, but what if I could go to the extreme and explain to you a man, his name is Jack Ma. He's the president owner of, of Alibaba.com. Alibaba.com. I'm not advocating he's a great man. I'm not advocating he's a great Christian. What I'm saying is that I'm going to give you an excerpt of his interview. He is worth, estimated at $28 billion. Given on the day where the stock prices are at, he's either more valuable or less valuable than Bill Gates on the balance sheet. Okay, so he's up there with Bill Gates, and a lot of us don't know him yet, but you will. He just IPO'd his company in America, Alibaba.com, ticker symbol B-A-B-A, -A, happened uh, in October, November-ish. Uh, what his company does is he, he connects Chinese manufacturers and Chinese distributors, because they're, they're producing things as cheaply as we can in this world right now in China, and you can log into Alibaba.com and buy direct from a Chinese manufacturer. Now, it doesn't sound very safe on the outset, but they do it, and that's what they do. And they have $9 billion of revenue a day. They are now competing with Walmart.com and Amazon.com, and he did it under 10 years. So mark my words, you're hearing about him now. His name is Jack Ma. You will continue to hear about him because this, this guy's becoming big fast. So CNBC interviewed Jack Ma. He's Chinese and interviewed him on November 11th of this month, of this year, so it's just a few weeks old, this is fresh news, and they asked, how the IPO go, Jack? How did everything go? And so you're, like I said, I'm taking you to the extreme now. If I could just have a little more, if I could just have another car, if I could just have, if I could just have my son's college payments paid for, I'd love that, right? Let me take you to the extreme of this. Let me take you to Jack Mom with $28 billion. Now, he said a lot of great things, and one of the things I love about Jack is he's honest, and here's what he said in the middle. Now, his whole interview wasn't like this. It was very positive. But here's what he said in the middle. He, he came real. Ready? He was interviewed by David Faber. Here's what he said. This month, I'm not very happy. I think too much pressure. I try to make myself happy because I know that if I'm not happy, my colleagues are not happy, and my shareholders are not happy, and my customers are not happy. Maybe this stock goes so up. Maybe people have high expectations on you. Maybe I think too much about the future and have too many things to worry about. IPO is great, and I'm happy with the results. But honestly, I think when people think too highly of you, you have the responsibility to calm down and be yourself. 
At that point, D David Faber, the interviewer, said, well, Jack, what are you going to do to make yourself happy? I mean, you got to think, the interviewer is saying, well, golly, I never, but, David, but Jack Ma was being real. And David said, well, what are you going to do, Jack? I mean, you got, you got the world. And here's what, here's what Jack said. I don't know. I need to have five or ten days sleep. That's his response. He didn't know what to do to be happy. And, and he went on through the interview, and I have pages of it, but I, for time's sake, we're not going to read it. He actually went on and said, I think philanthropy and philanthropic interests will make me happy. In other words, giving my money away. And he goes on in his interview to say, I'm gonna, I've talked with Bill Gates, and we're talking about who can give more money away, and who can give more money away more effectively. Can you imagine? If I had the power to give us each in here $28 billion in five years, I bet it would destroy us. I bet it would destroy us, myself included. I don't know if we could handle the weight. So God bestows a lot of money on certain people. But here, the reason I'm telling this story is because at the extreme of things, and he said in his interview, he literally said this, I could buy 10 bags and 11 houses, and it still wouldn't make me happy. I'm taking to the extreme. Contentment doesn't begin with money. Contentment begins right inside. You were not born content. Paul said twice in Philippians 4, he said twice, I have learned to be content in any and all. I have learned to be content in plenty or in want. He said, I learned. Therefore, we gain from this is God saying, you're not born content. You didn't come into this world content. You had to learn this thing. You had to learn to be content. And so how do we do this? I held off the last verse. Philippians 4, verse 13. Here's what Paul said. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. How many times have we watched a football game and on his arm, on a football player's arm, I can do all this, all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you think, what a godly man. And then he goes out and he uses that as his reason for being a great football player. He uses that for being a reason to be a great politi politician or whatever it is. He uses that to be a reason why he conquers the world. Paul said, and this scripture was originally derived from, the wrangling of something much harder than an NFL football game. The wrangling of our own contentment. That's where this verse was given to us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul <laughs> Maybe God's telling me something. And Paul's saying, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul's saying, you want to talk about wrestling things? I think the hardest thing I could wrestle that I need God's strength for is to be content, is to be content. So don't, you're not alone. If you're sitting here and you're laughing about that video, but deep down you know it's you, don't feel really, really bad because even 2,000 years ago we were wrestling with this, and even a godly man like Paul said, the only way I did it was through God's strength, and I had to learn this thing. So don't, don't beat yourself up right now, but know that you've got to start praying about it and asking God, God, show me contentment. Show me your holy contentment with what I have right now. Let me be content with my spouse. Let me be content with my kids. Let me be content with my kids' grades. Let me be content with the car I drive. Let me be content with the job I have. Let me be content with my neighbors and my neighborhood. Let me be content. And then, after I find contentment, then you show me where I go next. But I don't want to act out of my discontentment. I don't want to divorce him because I'm discontent. I divorce her because I'm discontent. Show me. Show me next. But first, give me contentment. That's roadblock number one. Roadblock number one is discontentment. Don't be discontent. Pray for it. Roadblock number two is frustration versus compassion. Frustration versus compassion. And this has to do with people. 
And you may say, well, why are, why are we talking about people? We're here to talk about me giving thanks to God. Well, here's what happens. She didn't say, he didn't say, he said, she said, they didn't tweet me back, they didn't text me back. I know he's on Facebook, he didn't like my status, he's liking her status, and we caught up, and what happens? We get so caught up and frustrated with people that we are forgetting about him, we lose our praise to him, and we lose our sincere thanks to him, because I'm so frustrated. I am so, I have just had it with people. I'm frustrated. That's why we're talking about this today. In fact, in the people I've supervised before, and those who are in here supervising people or work with people, which would make us all, uh, when you see a coworker or somebody you work for, I've had a great employee, and they're just, man, they knock out of the park every single day, every single work day they come in. I promote them to, 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 to crew leader, give them the extra payment for that crew lead position. We're going great. This is a great employee. Next day he comes in, or she comes in, and it's like I don't even know the person. What I didn't know is they're having marital strife. What I didn't know is that that one person who's most important to them is causing them more pain than anybody else in this face of the planet. So we're going to talk about that. And if you're in the middle of marital strife, Union Chapel is working on a, a marriage seminar series next year where it's, it's not going to be during this, the weekend service. It's going to be... Um, on an evening during the weekday, and we're going to have uh, specific marital seminar topics. So if you, if you are struggling with marriages, hold on, hold on tight. Love the one you're with, really. It's ironic how the one we're with is when we hate the most in life. Don't let that happen. That's that, that's that frustration versus compassion. So here's what Jesus did in Mark 34, or excuse me, Mark 6, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. He saw through. How many of this happens? Somebody walks in a room and their sin comes before them. And you can just see it. And you want to almost kind of, eh, I don't know. I don't want to be with this person. You can see the sin. You can see the strife. And you can see the discontent. You can see their clothes. You can see their skin color. You can see it. Jesus looks through it all. Jesus looks through it all. He looks through their culture. He looks through their current religion. Looks through everything. And he gets to that spirit of that person. And what does he do when he gets there? Compassion. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. All of us need Jesus. Get through my sin and get to who I am. I'm going to try to get through yours and get to who you are. And then let's have compassion on each other. That's the root of having true love for another. Jesus said, love your neighbor. This is where it starts. Jesus, he had compassion. Let me tell you what happened to Jesus right before this happened. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, we're told that Jesus is just informed that his cousin, John the Baptist, John's head was cut off, put on a platter, and presented to King Herod, a wretched king, who we are told died of worms eating him from the inside out. That's how wretched Herod was. God cursed Herod on this earth, and God cursed him in the afterlife. Herod's wretched. Herod ordered John the Baptist, who was in prison, to be taken out, beheaded for Herodias, his adulterous wife, puts the head on a platter, and then Jesus is just told about it. So Jesus said, gosh, i got to go to a solitary place. That's why this verse starts off with, when Jesus landed. When Jesus landed, because he was going away from people, he wanted to mourn his cousin's loss, this brutal loss. 
So in Jesus' lowest state, what he's teaching us is even if you're in your lowest state, you still look at people and have compassion on them. You look through everything that's presented to you, your prejudices, your, your views on society. You look through it all, and you get to the heart of that person. You get to the heart of, and have compassion and love that person. That's what Jesus did. That's how you deal with, with issues among people. Look at the higher calling. Look, if they don't know Jesus, now this was a secret Saturday night service, but I told them, I told 9 a.m., I'll tell you too, so it's not a secret, it's just something I live by. If somebody doesn't know Jesus, I instantly take my, 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 uh, my bar and lower it for them. My moral expectation bar is lowered. If you don't know Jesus and, you, and it becomes evident or you told me, hey, I'm, I'm a devout, devout atheist. Well, I've just taken my bar of moral character and I've lowered it down here. Not to insult you. No, no. Because when you don't know Jesus and you don't know who Christ is and you've, you've rejected God, your moral compass points all over the place. And so in order for me to still have compassion, I've got to understand, that's, that's the one thing. I don't look at anything else, or I try not to, when I look at someone who walks in my presence. The one thing I ask myself is, are they, are they a Christian or not? Because I know where to put my moral compass. I don't, I'm not concerned with skin color. I'm not concerned with the clothes, the house, the car. I'm not concerned with any of that stuff. I, I try to figure out, are you a Christian or not? Because if you're a Christian, then I think you're kind of up here with moral character, or at least, at least getting there. Or at least you're receptive to getting there, as far as what God calls moral. But if you're not a Christian, I don't raise the bar. I keep the bar down here for you. It's the way I do it because that helps me give compassion on them. It helps me see their character. It helps me love them. So don't let people get in your way of giving thanks or praise to God. It's too important. God values it too much. Number three roadblock, God's timeline versus ours. We covered God is all-powerful. God is huge. He created it with a breath. He's going to take it away with a breath. So why aren't you answering my prayer right now? I have a prayer, I have a need. God, you haven't answered it. I'm getting mad at you. Why does he wait? Here's an answer. 2 Peter 3. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let's cover that for a minute. God's not slow. He's patient. He's more patient than us. He's patient. And why is he patient? He's patient that none should perish. Look, God's saying, I've got 1.3 billion people in China. I've got 1 billion people in India who don't know me. And who are you to call me and, and end this game before they had a chance to know me? Who are you? Well, God, I'm a man in the first world, and I like my comfort, and you've taken my comfort away. Therefore, Jesus, come now, because I'm tired of this. Wait a minute. See it with God's timeline. God's saying, I have yet to save everybody, and I've got a time to get everybody into repentance. Who are you? What's your timeline? I'm not slow. I'm patient. And there has been an argument, a secular argument, and, and college students in high school and middle school, you're going to hear at some point in your education, this is what you're going to be told. Here's the answer. Ready? Guys, look, I see a group over here. Here's the answer. You're going to be asked this question. If God is all good, all knowing, and all powerful, how does he let bad enter this world? If he's all good, he only accepts good. If he's all knowing, he knows everything, and he's all powerful, he can wipe it all away. 
He possibly cannot accept bad. And people, atheists will stand back and say, that's the proof there's no God. Or at least God that's not loving. Or he's not all-powerful. Here's the answer. You just wrote your own obituary. Our flesh and who we are is evil. If you really believe that, that God is all that and he won't accept bad, then you would have been wiped out the day you sinned. Here's the answer, students and adults. Here's the answer. God is all good, all knowing, all powerful, and he sent his son Jesus to give us redemption, to give us salvation. That's the answer. He's given us time. It's not that he's weak. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he's not good. He's given us time. It took me 14 years. Some people take 50 years. Who are we to call God's timing into question? That's God's timeline. And if it becomes a frustration point for us, we've got to remove that roadblock. God's waiting on us. And we can't wait on him. Look, we're not alone. So again, I'm not beating up the first world populace, myself included. Here's, here's, an, here's another group of people. Revelation 6. Let's put this on the board. When he opened the fifth seal, he being the lamb, the lamb being Jesus Christ, Jesus was the only one who could open these seals at the time in Revelation. When he, being Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I, I being John, the revelation was given to John, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? When we complain to God, do we ever complain to God, God, sovereign Lord, holy and true, I got this prayer for you. We don't, but these people did. Here's who they were. Scripture tells us in verse 9, they were those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had maintained. They are the missionaries who left the comfort of the first world to go to Africa, to go to northern Egypt, to go to Syria, to go to the United Arab Emirates, to go into Iran, to go in North Korea. They left their comforts and they went there and they got martyred. The souls who've been martyred for their faith. They're the Yazidis in northern Iraq right now who are getting massacred by the thousands by this brutal group called ISIS. They're the ones, ISIS comes in and you got three choices. Accept Islam, pay a tax, or die. It's a loving religion. Accept Islam, pay a tax, or die. The Yazidis, the Christian Yazidis, stood up and said, Christ is my savior. And if you've seen the videos of how they massacred him, it's disgusting. And they've massacred him. They're doing this right now. They're the ones who are under the altar. In 1999, Columbine High School was invaded by a, sh a shooter, and he killed dozens. There was this little girl, and he walked up to her, and he put a gun to her head, and he said, if you renounce Jesus, you'll live. If you say Jesus is Savior, you'll die. And she said, Jesus is my Savior. Bang, he killed her. Her soul in Revelation 6 is underneath the altar. Her soul is there. The Yazidi's soul are there. The missionaries who died in the field are there. We're told in Scripture that the distance proportionate to... Where's Ryan? The distance, the distance from the altar is a direct proportion to where God puts you relative to what you did on this earth. If you look at the Old Testament, it goes the, the, inner, the inner chamber, the outer chamber, the courtyard, and, and heaven's described as being placed in one of these areas. What's happening is that the souls are being so close to the altar, they're so worthwhile to God, they're, they're right underneath the altar. And I don't know what the altar looks like, I don't know where it's at, but they're there. And if they're crying out, 
If they're crying out, God, how much longer? Then how much would we who live in first world comfort cry out, God, I've had enough. When's your time over? So don't beat yourself up and say, I'm a sinner because I can't accept God's timeline. You're looking at the people who are close to God, even in heaven, are saying, God, how much longer before you avenge our blood? We didn't die for no reason. And you know what? In, in, in Revelation 6, it goes on to say, they were given a white robe and told, wait a little while longer until I bring all those to repentance who are meant to come. Isn't that awesome? And in our frustration, we get mad. God, your timeline's not matching up with mine. I've got this. How long, God, sovereign and true, until you, your day comes? And God's saying, wait a little while longer. I've got more people to save. It's awesome. Our fourth point and our last point of, of roadblocks is hardship happens. Hardship happens. As sure as you're sitting here, as sure as you're breathing, as sure as you pay death, or excuse me, as sure as you pay taxes and face death, hardship will happen. You're either coming out of a hardship, in the middle of a hardship, or there's a hardship waiting for you you don't even know what happened yet. It's there. Hardship's there. And we're going to give you some biblical insight right now into how to handle that. Hebrews 12. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So look at this. In Hebrews 12, we're told, this is about disciplining us as children. And remember, God wants to be our father. I love this analogy. I'm raising, my wife and I are raising two little boys, four and seven years old. And I put them in timeout, and I do spank them, and I do, we, we do that. It's gentle. I know people get in trouble for that. <laughs> and, and they aren't a fan of that. I take away their we, I give them consequences, they're not happy with that. But it is for their good, because what am I trying to do? I'm trying to produce a righteousness and peace in these two little boys. And so how different is that when God the Father says, look, I'm not letting you have the the car you want, because I'm trying to produce righteousness and peace in you. Don't cry to me. This is for your own good. James 1, chapter 12, or excuse me, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised for, to those who love him. You receive a crown of life. There's a lot of theology behind what this crown of life is, but I'll say it's good. And to be honest with you, I'm chasing after the crown of life. I pray that when I get to heaven and my eyes close and my last breath is taken, I pray that when I get there, Jesus, and I open my eyes and Jesus is standing in front of me and he hugs me, I pray that he's got this crown. He says, here, Chris, this is for you. I want you to chase after that too. There's a lot too that we will not cover what the crown of life is today, but I want it. So what God's saying is that endure hardship as discipline. I'm trying to refine you. I'm trying to build righteousness and peace in you. And then in, in James, I want, I've got this crown waiting for you. Your, your trials and your tribulations will develop perseverance. And perseverance, as you persevere through this life, I've got a crown waiting for you. In James, again, chapter 1, now verse 2, James says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then we go down and perseverance produces crown of life. 
So James is saying, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy when you face hardship. So it's biblical. Hardship is going to happen. It's there, sure as death and taxes, sure as you're sitting here. Hardship's going to come. But be refined by it. Have you ever talked to a Christian who's been a Christian for like 40, 50, 60 years, who for that whole time has been really subjected to Christ and really said, God, I just want to know you. I'm going to accept your, your discipline. And you ever see those, I accept whatever you have come my way, I accept it. And when you talk to a person like that, and, and you compare that to where I was the first day I became a Christian, the faith level is dramatic. And so I encourage you if, you, if you know Christ, Lord and Savior, continue in that, persevere in that, and when you get to the end of this life, your faith level, looking back, will be dichotomous. It will be tremendously different. Hold on to that. Keep growing in God. And when you get to the end, and you will, we all will, that crown of life is waiting. Hardship happens. As a hardship happens and comes your way, there's a certain categories that things happen. Something happens. And you handle it wrong. God then brings it back into your life. Do you handle it right or wrong? Wrong. God then brings it back into your life. Okay, finally I figured out how to act in a Christian way. Boom. It's kind of like when I ask my children to, to say, may I please be excused from the kitchen table? And they get up and they walk away. Come back here. But mom, but what are you supposed to say before you leave the table? May I please be excused? There you go. Now you, It's kind of like God. And this happens almost every night, right? They get up and go, come back. Or they go away and their plate's still on the table. Hey, guys, come back. Plate's on the table. And they know it. They've got to go back and they put the table on the, in, on the kitchen, near the kitchen sink and they go. Right? That's what God's doing to us. <laughs> and it's almost that simplistic to him. Hey, you failed. I'm going to do it to you again. Get it right. Hardship happens and, and you've got to focus in on that. He's going to refine you. It's going to keep happening. As I said, we're, we're approaching the end of the sermon. We're coming down to some of our last points. In the bulletin, you'll see two points at the bottom. Count your blessings and focus on the positive. I'm not going to go into the scripture on detail. All the scripture's there. These are two things that can't be overlooked. Count your blessings. Pile them up. Wonderful wife, wonderful family, wonderful house, wonderful car. You've poured health on all of us. You've, you've allowed us to accept you as Christ and Savior. Thank you for the job. Thank you for, you name it, friends and family. Count your blessings. It's biblical. And then when you're there, once you've counted them, Focus on them. Focus on the positive. It's all biblical. Do that. And here's the bookend. The last thing I focus on for giving thanks, or the, the next thing I focus on for giving thanks, is salvation in heaven. Salvation in heaven. God is big. God is huge. That alone is enough to stand on. There are four roadblocks we just talked about. Discontentment, people, God's timeline, and hardship. Those four things get in the way of me giving thanks. And the last thing is salvation in heaven. That's the thing I give thanks for. God is big, and I'm going to be with you someday. I do, and when I'm down, even when I'm up, I focus there. I get there. We talked about how big God is, but now I'm going to reveal to you what heaven is like. If you put the scripture on the screen, 1 Corinthians 2. It's kind of a trick, trick scripture. Here, here's why. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, 
the things God has prepared for those who love him. Sorry, I can't describe heaven because I can't. My eye hasn't seen it. My ear hasn't heard it, and my mind hasn't conceived it. Neither has yours. So when you see those pictures on TV, you know, TV, or you Google uh, heaven or landscape, and you've got these mystical lands, and even when you watch the new digital age movies and you see great landscapes and earthscapes, wow, it's amazing. Well, guess what? Heaven's better than what you could see. Heaven's better than what you can hear. And, and wow, above all, I can't even put it in my mind and conceive what heaven's going to be like. So I go here. When I look for giving thanks, I say, God, I can't conceive it. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know it's going to be great. And so here's where I give thanks. Thank you, God, that someday I'm going to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for how big you are. Thanks, you, thanks for the heaven that you have prepared for me. Because I love you. You've prepared that place for me. Thank you. And if you don't know Christ, Lord, and Savior today, do so. God is big, and he's got a great place waiting for you. He's got a great place waiting for you. Four things we talked about getting away. Number one is discontentment. We get too discontent, don't we? We get frustrated by people, and we really shouldn't. We get frustrated by God's timing. God's got a plan. He's got a timeline. We're to persevere. We're to grow. And hardship. Hardship happens. We're fine through that. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, you are all-powerful. You are almighty. You are the God who's above it all. You have prepared a place for me I cannot conceive. Thank you for allowing me to go there. Thank you for preparing a place for all of us, God. And God, we pray now for those that don't know you, that they come to a loving understanding of you today. And for those of us to do that we grow closer to you today. God, remove the roadblocks from our lives Allow us to grow through them. Allow us to, to, to pray in your name to remove them, God. For we love you and we trust you and we know that you have only what the best for us. God, you are almighty and all-powerful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.